you would bless me and let me speak as I ought to and just convey your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, guys, today we're going to go through just a short section of verses. We're going to go through Colossians 2, verses 8 through 15. And it's another interesting chunk where he continues, Paul, writing this letter, continues a lot of the same themes. In this letter to the Colossians, he has just been hammering home how important Jesus is, how everything else pales in comparison to him, and exactly how it pales in comparison, and how awesome what he's done is. And he just keeps repeating it from different angles. And we're going to get another chunk from a couple different angles today. But he's really continuing the same theme that he's been talking about up until this point. And that is how awesome Jesus is and about how nothing else can compare. So we're going to jump right in in verse 8. Here we go. He tells the Colossians, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. There's a couple different translations of this verse. And, uh, you know, some say philosophy and deceit. Some say deceptive philosophy. What's going on here is not Paul hating philosophy. That would be silly. Philosophy is just the love of wisdom. There's plenty in the Bible about wisdom. The Bible likes wisdom. What Paul is against here is that people are trying to lead the Colossians away from what they know to be true. It has the the kind of nuance of taking them away as prey, one commentary said. You know, they're going in and they're using deceit and philosophy to try to convince them that they're wrong and that their particular philosophy is right. And that's a problem because Paul says, you know what? These things are based on a couple things that don't have authority. One, it's based on human tradition. Well, human tradition is nice. But in the Bible elsewhere, human tradition is used to refer to like the Jewish traditions. And, you know, the Pharisees were always telling Jesus things like, your disciples didn't wash their hands like they're supposed to, according to the tradition of the elders. And Jesus is like, dude, you guys, that's it's just tradition. It's your tradition. That's not scripture. You know what I mean? So tradition is always butting heads with Jesus in the Gospels. Not that all traditions are bad, but something was going on in this church. We don't have all the details of who was going to the Colossians and who was trying to convince them to go another way, but it had something to do with the traditions of men. Could have been Greek tradition, could have been Jewish tradition. We have no idea. But Paul's saying, don't let them fool you. Don't let them use those good arguments to pull you away from the truth just because it's based on tradition. And the tradition is based on the elemental spiritual forces of this world and not Christ. Now, if you just heard me say that and you're saying, hmm, yes, elemental spiritual forces, I have no idea what you just said. You're not alone. I had to really look into this one. And honestly, if Mark was here, he could do a better job explaining the Greek to you than I can because I have not taken ancient Greek, and he has, but I will do my best. This has... The, the notion of the rudiments of something and the first things, the ABCs, if you will, of understanding. But it also can mean actual spiritual forces. Very strange. But basically, if Paul is meaning, look, it's just human tradition based on the wisdom of the world, you know, that also is inferior to Christ. Because Christ is superior to all that. But if he's saying, look, this is based on traditions that are based on demonic influence, 
that is also inferior to Christ, who is superior to that. So whether it means one or the other or both, Christ is still superior. And his point in verse 8 is this. Their arguments sound good. They have a long tradition behind these arguments, but it's not based on Christ. And you know that Christ is supreme. You know that there's no other God. It's not based on Christ. Don't listen, guys. Hold fast to what you know is true. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. And then he talks about Christ some more. Big surprise, right? I mean, in this book, he talks about Jesus a lot. I mean, he always talks about Jesus a lot. But in Colossians, he talks about him a whole lot. So he says, hey, these arguments they have aren't based on Christ. Let me go off on another rant, if you will, about how awesome Christ is. And he does, starting in verse 9. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. All the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Could be a couple different things going on here, too. He's used this word fullness in the past. And now, uh, you know, there's this weird religion that's going to pop up. It's going to be in full effect, you know, in the second century. It's called Gnosticism. And it already started. The seeds are popping up. And they believe that there was this one big mega god. And then all kinds of other spirits that kind of came from him. And that the big distant God and all these spirits formed the fullness of deity. And they came up with this whole belief structure about all that. And Paul says, no, all the godness of God, all the fullness there is, is in Jesus. It's nowhere else. This is a very polemic word. He's saying, that's a lie. The fullness is in Jesus only. That's it. And not only that, but Plato hadn't done us any favors, and he still hasn't. And the Gnostics weren't going to do us any more favors when they decided we need to just chop off the spirit and the body. The body, we need to say, is like lower, lesser, kind of bad. And the spirit is really good. And the Gnostics really believed this, right? So they would never think that this God would dare come to earth in a body. I mean, being on earth is bad enough with all this like material stuff. You know, but actually taking physical form in a body, that's ridiculous. Why would a, a perfect spirit lower himself so much? And yet Paul is saying, not only is all the godness of God in Jesus, he's as divine as it gets, all the fullness is right there, bodily. He's blowing their minds. And this is probably aimed right at the attackers that are trying to lead this church astray. He's correcting something. He's correcting an argument that is trying to pull them from the truth. Jesus is all the fullness of God. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, a commentary that I kind of like, says that this means the very essence and nature of God. All of it existed in Jesus. All the godness of God in Jesus. Verse 10. Here's a shocker. Wrap your mind around this one. If verse 9 says, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, explain verse 10. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. Whoa. He is the head over every power and authority. All the godness of God is in Jesus, and in Jesus you're filled. What are you filled with? Anybody? Like you're filled with the godness of God, right? Explain that. Well, it's complicated. Kind of hard to understand. But here we go. We're going to try. 
In your notes, I wrote down, we never become divine, because I think it's necessary to just say that. Like, becoming a Christian doesn't mean that you become, like, as God as God is, as God as Jesus is. It's not true. Jesus is God in a unique way. We will never be. But God himself, as the Holy Spirit, lives inside his children. God himself fills you. Jesus himself, when he was talking to the disciples, he said, be filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus. It is God. Can you wrap your mind around this? If you can, talk to me later and explain it to me because we've been trying for thousands of years and we can't do it. It's a mystery, but it's true. And it's what the Bible clearly teaches. If Jesus is your Lord and Savior, if, as he talked about earlier, you have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, if you've become his child, he fills you. And it's awesome. And you can feel it. And it's cool. And it regenerates you. And it's real. Don't lose sight of that, Colossians. And he is the head over every power and authority. This is another thing he keeps saying. Jesus is the head, you know. And he, he talks about these angelic hierarchies earlier in the book. You know, the, the dominions and powers and the thrones. And he's like, look, Jesus is the Lord Supreme over all that piddly crap, guys. Like, he's like, stop worrying about that so much. It's just Jesus. All power, all authority, all the goddess of God is here. Focus here. And he hits that note again, just for good measure, you know. It's kind of like, this book is like full of lefts and rights. And man, he's, I like Paul in Colossians. Less so in Galatians, but that's also good. <laughs> Maybe that's because I feel like a Galatian sometimes. If you've never read Galatians, you should. All right, focus on Jesus. Don't let these empty, deceitful philosophies pull you astray. He's all the godness of God, and you're filled in him, and he's the head, and he's the authority. Verse 11, in him you were also circumcised. What? With a circumcision not performed by hands, your whole self ruled by the flesh. What? Was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. When I was studying this verse, you know, I, I can't help it. I'm, I'm a churchy church guy. You know, I was like born and raised in church. I was there three days a week. Sometimes we just forget how weird this stuff sounds, you know? But as I was reading verse 11, I tried to imagine what would it be like if I'd never been to church before and I walk in and the guy at the front with his hair pulled back starts talking about circumcision. Where in the world is that coming from? So I thought I'd better explain. <laughs> Not too much. Ask your neighbor or your mom. But, <laughs> so, this may point out that some of the people that were bothering the Colossians may have been Jews that were extremely zealous for their traditions. Because the Jews knew and they were proud of the reality that they were the people of God. God really did come down and say, I want you to be my people and here's going to be the mark, okay? You guys are going to be circumcised on the eighth day all your males, and this is going to show to the whole world that you are my people. And you know, rather than thinking that was really weird or odd, they were proud of it. Because it was the mark of their national heritage, it was the mark that they belonged to Yahweh, and everyone else didn't. It worked both ways. And that nationalism and that pride followed right up to this day, about 2,000 years ago in Colossae, and we know from the book of Galatians that Jews were going to places, and Maybe these were Jews that really believed in Jesus and really believed in his saving work, but they were saying to these, these Greeks, they were like, guys, 
You just gotta do one thing. It's not a big deal. I know you're in your 40s now, but we have to have a little operation just to show that you're really in God's people. Like, you're willing to do that, right? And Paul fought this battle in Jerusalem. He fought this battle in Asia. I mean, he was fighting this battle all over the place. And that battle is this. Circumcision no longer marks who belongs to the people of God. That's passe. Because Jesus got cut up enough in his physical body when he died for us that now belonging to Jesus marks who is in the family of God. That is the new sign. So he says, it's like a circumcision on the inside. And if you want to look to something to mark the transition from not the people of God to coming into the family of God, I'll give you something. It's called baptism. And that's kind of interesting. In him you were circumcised with circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off or cast away when you were circumcised by, by Christ. I want to spend just another minute, and this is kind of weird already, we're going all in. This word flesh pops up in Paul's writings a lot. What in the world is he talking about? He's already making the point that the body's not bad, right? He's coming against that belief. No, if the body was good enough for God, it should be good enough for you. It's not evil. But he uses this Greek word, flesh, to mean something other than just your body or other than just a T-bone steak. He uses it figuratively to mean the old self before you belong to God and the desires and the drives that will still pop up inside you that are contrary to God's heart and God's will. That he calls the flesh. And all over Paul's writings, he's warning these churches and he's saying, look guys, this flesh thing, this old you, these desires and drives that you're gonna have pop up that are contrary to God, you've gotta master those things, man. You've gotta slap them down. When they show up, you've gotta do battle because they are contrary to the Holy Spirit. Guess where the Holy Spirit is? In you. And they're waging war. And you need to decide who's gonna win. Man up. It's your responsibility. Follow the Spirit. And he's saying, you cast away that old self that didn't have a choice. That old you that was just dominated by those drives and desires, psh, gone, man. That old man is dead. So when those desires and drives pop up, remember it's gone and treat it like it's gone. You've been circumcised on the inside. That's good, actually. Verse 12. When were we circumcised with Christ? Well, he says, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. I had somebody ask me one time, why do you get baptized? And I thought, that is an excellent question. I'm not sure. And then I thought about it and I really, you know, I, John the Baptist baptized people and, you know, it's, it's symbolic and I, I just, I don't know. But it is actually very important. And it is a marker. It is a marker that right now I make a decision. I am going to align myself with Christ. He's going to be my Lord. And what it symbolizes is that just like he died a real death, you go down into the water. And just like he popped right back up, you come out. And we say when we bring people out of the water, 
You're raised in the newness of life. And I have a theory that a lot of people don't hear that because the water's still in their ears, so I say it twice. Once to everybody else and then once to them. But you're raised with Christ. You don't just die with Him. The good news is, He came back and so do you. And baptism symbolizes that you have new life. The old you is gone and dead and the new you is alive and here. There's this talk in the Bible a lot about being dead and being alive and some of it's symbolic and some of it is just flatly spiritually true. And we run into both in this passage. Baptism symbolizes you coming back to life with Christ because you shared in his death on the cross. Verse 13. We're running through this. I feel like I need to stop and tell some stories about my trip. Or... We had mule deer walk right by us. Has anybody ever seen a mule deer? They are absolutely scary gigantic. I mean, if you're used to white tails, they were like this tall, weren't they? Yeah. Holy crap. And they eat grass and we were scared of them. Interesting truth. Anyway, verse 13. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, so before you knew Jesus, pre-regenerated state, not in the family of God, Paul describes this as dead. When you were dead in your sins in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ and he forgave us all our sins. We had to do a project for school, geez, three years ago now. And we had to come up with a new way to tell the gospel to this generation. We weren't allowed to do anything churchy. We had to come up with something creative. And we had to tell the gospel story in a creative, non-churchy way. And we're thinking about this, and we're thinking about this, and all of a sudden it occurred to me, we can use zombies. Has anybody heard me go off on my zombie uh, yes, all right, high five. You've heard my zombie salvation story. So good. Here's the weird thing. Zombies, right? We have a show on right now, the most popular zombie show on TV. What's it called? Walking Dead. So, Ephesians chapter 2. He refers to people who don't know Jesus as the walking dead. Honest to God. Also in Ephesians chapter 2, they're called the living dead. Also a zombie movie. And that made me think, maybe this is not an accident. Because follow along with me. If a zombie is called the undead, right? Because they sure look dead. All the signs of death are there, isn't it? I mean, they're like rotting, they're gross, they're nasty. They're basically walking corpses. And you look at them and you think, you're dead. Except there's signs of life. And it just doesn't make sense. Like, they look like they should be dead, but there's signs of life. We look alive. We look around and we don't see corpses. But spiritually, Jesus looks at us, at us and says, well, they're dead. If we could see ourselves before Jesus with spiritual eyes, we would see the walking dead. Very interesting. I have a whole talk on that. But this is not an isolated idea. They were dead before Jesus and made alive for the first time in him. And the miracle of the cross, the miracle of God's love, the thing that makes no sense if love isn't at the very heart of God is that when we were in this dead zombie-like state, the Bible also says that we were enemies of God. Okay, we talked about this earlier too. We were enemies in our hearts. We actively disliked and were against God's character and God's desires. 
At that point, before we did a 180 or had a change in heart, Jesus said, hmm, I love them. Yeah, I'm going to go down there and I'm going to be a sacrifice and I'm going to make a way to be reconciled with these people that are dead and hate me. These people that I know are going to kill me when I go down there. I love them and I'm willing to do that. Wow. We cannot lose sight of that. That one thing deserves our worship now until forever. If God never gives us another fuzzy feeling or another blessing, that should be enough to inspire our worship. And Paul is quick to remind the Colossians of that. Don't let anybody take you captive by these arguments. You need to remember Jesus. Remember being dead? You're alive because of him, and he's in charge of everything. And then he forgave us all our sins. This is nuts. Forgives us the sins and all the wrong stuff we did when we were dead and hated him and didn't know any better. Verse 14. He forgives us our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness that stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. This is another thing that has kind of a back-in-the-day cultural relevance that we might miss. This whole thing of illegal indebtedness, the charges written out against us, that he nailed to the cross. Crucifixion was a disgustingly common practice in the Roman Empire for people that committed really heinous crimes. And it took a long time for you to die, usually. So they would nail you to a piece of wood, and above you, they would nail why you're there. Your charges. Why is this person suffering this horrible death and dying? They killed three people and they're a traitor to the empire. Well, now I don't feel bad about insulting them and adding to their shame. Culturally, that would make me more honorable. Okay? So I look at why they're there and I stop pitying them. Usually, that's the way it was supposed to work. Because in the Roman days, you wanted to be honorable. And this was the epitome of shame. Paul is saying, when you were dead and hated God, God decided. I see all these charges written against them that deserve this horrible crucifixion. I'll take that. Crucify me and make those my charges so that they can be alive. Should earn our worship forever. Amazing. And that's not the only thing the cross did. Earlier in Colossians, Paul says that by the cross, by his blood, Jesus made peace with everything. Peace is a funny thing. It depends on what side you're on, how you experience making peace. If I'm a POW, and I am treated horribly and tortured by my oppressors, and suddenly my team comes in and takes charge and makes peace, that looks like me getting out of there, getting a shower, getting some neosporin, and getting a steak. That is good news. But if I'm an evil oppressor, Making peace looks like me getting defeated. Does that make sense? Paul hits both sides. This is what peace looks like for you, dead people that hated God. He's going to take your punishment and forgive your sins. But this is how it looks for every demonic authority and every earthly authority that is against Jesus. It says, Having disarmed the powers and authorities... 
He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Wow. When they took Jesus and they nailed him to the cross, they made a spectacle of him. The robe, the crown of thorns, the spitting, the stripping of naked, the hanging him up publicly. It was meant to be a spectacle. Right? And Paul is saying, it's by that very act that he actually took control. It's by this very act that he won. I just read a book by N.T. Wright, phenomenal book, called How God Became King. And N.T. Wright refers to the crucifixion as the enthronement. And he reminds us of 1 Corinthians 2.8, I think. Let me make sure I got my reference correct. I don't see it there. Did I not write it down? That's crazy. Yes, 1 Corinthians 2.8. It says that if they understood, they would not have crucified Jesus. If they knew that he was going to win by seeming to lose, they would have never crucified him. But through the crucifixion, he disarmed everything that opposed him. When he popped out of the grave three days later, he came out the king. But he was enthroned when he hung on the cross. The battle was won when they lifted him up, when he was willing. Nothing on heaven or on earth, I'm going to sound like kind of a Calvinist here for a second. Bear with me. It's not necessarily true. Talk to me later. There is nothing that is outside God's jurisdiction. Zero. Not people, not governments, not demons. Nothing. He is Lord of all. He's in charge. And if you are one of his kids, that is very good news. And if you are not, it is something you need to think long and hard about if you're a human being and be very afraid of if you're an angelic entity that has chosen the wrong side. Does that make sense? I, I'm talking a lot about the angels because Paul does in this book. I think it's part of the deception that was attacking the Colossian church. They were trying to sidetrack these people to think about all this other stuff, so much other spiritual stuff other than Jesus. And Paul's, one of Paul's main points in this book is there is no other focal point. There is one spiritually, and it's Jesus Christ himself because of what he's done. That is it. That is the conclusion. We will continue next week and we'll move on. And spoiler alert, there's probably going to be some stuff about Jesus in there. I know it's hard to believe, but I'm just going to go ahead and pray right now. And I hope you'll bow your heads and join me. Father God, thank you. Thank you, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the cross. Lord, we choose you. We thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you that you've made a way for us to be reconciled with you. Thank you for bringing us peace. Thank you that there's nothing else that can trump your decision spiritually, Lord. When we pray to you like you said we could, we are praying to the highest possible power. There is nothing over you. We are appealing to the highest court in the land and the decision maker is our dad. Thank you, God, for your blatant, unwarranted favoritism. <laughs> Thank you, God. We love it. Yeah, and if there's anybody here who doesn't know Jesus, I would just encourage you to, to do that today. Talk to me, talk to Nicole, talk to Chris. And yeah, today's the best day in the history of the world to make that decision, to become a child of God and to make him your Lord. Yeah, in Jesus' name, amen. If you guys need prayer for anything, my big scary brother is right over here and he will pray for you.
And if you need some encouragement, that's a good stab too. And if not, that's cool. Let's eat food and talk together. See you guys next week. Thank you.